HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. As the country prepares for a new and much-welcomed president to take office in January, I want to take a look back at, well, the the damage done to our food and agricultural systems uh, over the past four years. Joining me today to unpack the major policy changes we have experienced since Trump took office and the long-term effects they will have on our food system is Lisa Held, senior policy reporter for Civil Eats and a fellow Heritage Radio Network host of the show, The Farm Report. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jenna. Um, So you've been covering all of these issues in great detail for the past four years. So nothing nothing is new to you, I would say. But in your recent Civil Eats article, How Four Years of Trump Reshaped Food and Farming, you you put it all down in one place. (laughs) Yes. How did that feel? (laughs) Um, It was was quite the project, um, I I will say. It took a while. Um, Like you said, you know, we – the whole – the team at Civil Eats has been covering – um, these policy issues very closely over the, the four years, but you know there's just so much. And when you when you go out and try to figure out, okay, how are we going to piece together all of the most significant things that happened? It just ended up being um, a little bit of a beast of an article, I would say. Yeah. Even though I wasn't doing new interviews, it's not a lot of new information. Um, but we thought it would be we thought it was important to 
just, you know, going into the election, no matter what happened, just to have kind of a record of the the past four years and the ways in which the administration has impacted um, the food system and just kind of have it all there so that we would remember it, I guess. (laughs) And, And like you said, you know, and also be able to to think going forward about, you know, no matter who is now, now we know it's uh, President-elect Joe Biden, but at the time we were thinking, well, regardless, we, we want to know like what impact this will have um, going forward. Yeah. And it is such a well done article, I'm, which is one of the many reasons I'm excited to have you on today. It's like oh, thank you. jam packed with, you know, with everything you need to know, links to your research and also just laid out in like a very easy to digest way. So it's truly um, just a wonderful, wonderful summary. And, and in it, you cover, um, you know, everything from labor to farm safety to environmental rollbacks to food insecurity and more. Um, so mm-hmm. we're we're going to get into as much of it as we can in 45 minutes. And I, I want to start with um, <laughs> ag and the environment. Um, sure. The, yeah. So we know. My favorite. Over, yeah. Yes, I know. I mean, <laughs> um, over the past four years, the Trump administration, mostly via the EPA, has dismantled major climate policies and rolled back even more rules around clean air, water, wildlife, toxic chemicals, you know, some of those kind of important things. Um, And we don't have time to obviously go into all of them, but like I'm wondering if you can kind of pull out a couple of the scariest rollbacks you, you know, in, in your opinion, and just tell us a little bit what happened there. Maybe with, maybe starting with the dicamba based weed killers. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think pesticides in general, um, there have been quite a few um, rollbacks that have definitely had an impact and will continue to. So dicamba was a big one. Um, It is an herbicide that uh, was found to drift a lot and destroyed millions of acres of farmers' crops all over the country over the last few years um, because the herbicide was essentially drifting onto fields that were not resistant to it. Um, so um, a court in, I want to say it was over the summer, maybe July, um, ruled that essentially the EPA had uh, rushed their approval and, and had kind of um, understated the risks of dicamba and said farmers have to stop using it. It's just, it's causing too much damage. It's too dangerous. Um, So that happened. And then the EPA said, actually, well, if you still have it, you can keep using it. (laughs) And and people were mad about that. And then um, they started this process of of, um, sort of going over the science again to potentially reauthorize it. And um, they ended up doing that extremely quickly. And um, I want to say, sorry, the timing is just tricky because there's so many dates in this article. <laughs> but uh, very recently, I, I think in October, basically they, they did come back and said, okay, actually everyone can go back to using dicamba-based uh, weed killers for the next five years. And um, which people were just really shocked by because it had done so much damage. And that one, I mean, that was a really big one because it had been in the news a lot. But um, the other really big rollback on pesticides was on uh, chlorpyrifos. Uh, and that was a pesticide that the EPA itself had determined wasn't safe and had um, banned under the Obama administration. 
and um, the Trump administration essentially rolled that back. So so that is able to be used now. And uh, similar uh, weaken safeguards for atrazine, another herbicide that is banned in Europe. Um, so yeah, just overall, I would say just tons of deregulation on the use of pesticides um, has been a theme, an ongoing theme. I say. Uh, like, why? I'm going to probably ask you this question 12,000 times over the course of this interview. Like, why? Why would they do that? I just, you know, these pesticides do things like cause brain damage in children. So, I mean, what's the upside there? Who's lobby? Like, is the lobby that strong or is the Trump administration just, you know, like, who cares? <laughs> well, I, I'll give you the 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 answer that they would give. Um, you know, there there is definitely a group of people that that celebrated these rollbacks, which would be a lot of um, big agribusiness companies and commodity farmers. And basically the reasoning that the administration would give is, well, farmers need all of the tools available to them. And, you know, the, they often say the science on the risks is exaggerated. You know, even if they're dangerous, it's only if there's a lot, you know, you have really intense exposure um, at low doses, it's okay. Um, and so basically their their whole messaging is always around we can't take tools away from farmers that um, they need in order to produce crops at a at a certain level. Um, but I mean, I, I <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that um, this is definitely a business um, situation <laughs> decision. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 is the lobby that strong? Yeah, it's insanely strong. Um, these are some of the you know biggest companies in the world that are putting pressure on um, lawmakers, not just, you know, the President Trump, but on, like, every senator, every representative donating to their campaigns. Um, there's there's just so much money in agricultural chemicals that it's definitely a, uh, <laughs> a factor, if not the factor. And actually, the New York Times... Um, documented, um, there's a link in the article to um, an investigation they did that uh, drew direct lines between um, pesticide industry executives uh, in contact with the USDA. So, and that happens, by the way, like under every administration, but I think the Trump administration has made it just kind of like taking it to a new level, basically. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, and I mean, any other, would you say like kind of any other environmental protections in the name of reducing regulations on farmers that the administration has pushed through that are particularly egregious or potentially long-lasting, harder to roll back, the rollback? <laughs> yeah, the um, the other big one was um, this rule called Waters of the United States. Um, WOTUS is what people WOTUS, call it. WOTUS, uh, yes. <laughs> You know about WOTUS. Oh, yeah. Nobody liked so, talking about WOTUS, though. It was always, like, one of those policies that people, when you would try to get people to talk about it, they'd be like, ugh. <laughs> it's, like it just, well, it's, like, really, um, like... Wonky. It's weird. It's Yeah, exactly. It's hard to explain. It's like, oh, well, it relates to pollution in certain bodies of water. It's it's just not, like, an easy sort of concept to, to talk about. But... Um, that was a big, yeah, that, the fact that the administration um, essentially rescinded that rule um, was a really big deal and I think will allow for a lot more agricultural pollution in bodies of water. And um, that's one that I, 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 
I mean, I can't obviously, I'm just like guessing, but mm-hmm. I could see um, a Biden administration potentially um, taking action to to roll that, roll it back again, re-roll it back, I don't yeah. know, you know, go back to the the other rule. Um, and then I, I would just say like there's there are a few other things, but just in general, the kind of um, move away from talking about climate change and the climate crisis as a crucial um, topic that relates to our food system um, in all of these, you know, agencies, USDA and EPA, specifically when we talk about the environment, um, that's that's a really big deal. Like, it's just been kind of four years of that not being a priority. And you and I both know that the climate crisis is real and terrifying. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that, and you know, literally, like taking the words "climate change" away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I was at the, um, the the USDA event. It was last December. I went to it where Sunny Purdue unveiled the um, agriculture innovation agenda, which was like they were gonna, they were basically saying we're going to make agriculture in the U.S. more environmentally friendly. We we believe in this, and it was actually like kind okay. of yeah. incredible to watch him. Like he talked for like forty minutes and ne- and just totally avoided ever mentioning the planet warming, climate change, climate. Like it, it was. I mean, they were. It was so obvious that there is a extremely focused effort to just not mention say those it, words. to take it out of the. Yeah, exactly. Just to say so. those words, it's un- that's unbelievable. That takes effort. It takes a lot of right effort from like, the from the speechwriters. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, Okay, well, kind of in that same vein of um, while we're sort of talking a little bit about chemicals, um, there's been some similar rollbacks uh, as in chemicals relating to food safety, right? And, like, let's be honest, I don't think that the, like, food safety regulations in the U.S., like, in the American food system have ever been particularly our strong suit. Um, (laughs) But it seems like this administration also seemed even less invested um, in it. Um, Can you tell us, like, what are some of the kind of red flags that you witnessed over the years? Yeah, sure. Um, So I don't, I I haven't covered closely really like the um, kind of chemicals in food regulation so much, but um, in this article I did um, include mention of, um, for instance, there's a a chemical called uh, perchlorate. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that one right, (laughs) Um, but um, had some serious science behind it um, that it was pretty dangerous and the FDI denied um, a a petition to ban it in food. Um, and then, I mean, I thought this was, you know, I, I just found this when I was putting this together. I hadn't heard this before, but I think rather than just chemicals in food, just on the food safety front, the fact that they sort of slowed down enforcement of food safety across the board, um, which I've covered in, in terms of, um, for instance, allowing, uh, poultry plants to speed up line speeds, the privatization of, um, inspections at swine slaughterhouses, things like that. But I was surprised to learn that um, they also, like the FDA, there's numbers that, that, you know, they draw, they they use this warning letter as a tool to tell companies, hey, you did something wrong and we're we're sending you this warning letter. If you don't fix it, we're going to come in and um, 
we're going to, you know, shut you down. And it's a, one of their biggest enforcement that, tools they have to prevent tainted food from getting into the food supply. And um, in the first two and a half years of the Trump administration, the number of letters sent by the FDA dropped by about a third compared to that same time period um, during the Obama administration. So, And not necessarily because our food, because like it's the system's getting safer. No, nothing changed. I mean, (laughs) nothing changed on that front. I mean, we would know if, actually, I I don't have the number here, but there have been a lot of of outbreaks um, in the the last few years, salmonella and, and, you know, we've all seen all the romaine um, issues and there, there, nothing is, it, there's no evidence that I've seen that things have just gotten so safe that they don't need to send letters anymore. Um, so yeah, just sort of, just like with um, the environment stuff, it's just a lot of deregulation. Um, they're just not doing as much to police the industry, essentially. Um, I think that you write about Mindy um, Brashears who is mm. um, somebody like, I mean, appointed by the administration, and she seems to embody Trump's entire approach to governing, which is someone with no qualifications relevant to the position who stands to financially benefit from her position, especially at the expense of the public. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about who she is and um, why why I think this? <laughs> why I think she's um, the embodiment? yeah. Yeah, so she was installed as a the top food safety official, and um, she was just someone who was really closely aligned with um, the food industry. Specifically, her research was funded by the National Cattlemen's Association and the National Pork Board. Those are both um, sort of big food industry organizations that don't really represent, like, you know, your small hog farmer down the road. They're, they represent big industry. Um, so, you know, like you said, it's kind of people who are just coming. I mean, and like, again, I will say like, this happens in every administration. There's a revolving door between, um, you know, federal agencies and industry. This is like a long running thing. Um, but I do think, again, it's just an example of how it's more obvious, um, and more pronounced and, uh, under Trump and <laughs> just like he just took it and really ran with it more. <laughs> right, right. Like something related to her patents, like how she could benefit off of food contamination, I thought I read. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's it's scary to me. But yeah. Um, and also the privatization of, of meat inspections like that. I don't what is that kind of what would that look like? I mean, it basically is like allowing companies to use their own inspectors um, in plants. And, you know, and then they, there's some paperwork they have to file and things like that, but they don't have USDA outside inspectors there all the time, um, which is crazy. I mean, really different, right? <laughs> like we, so it's, it's, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like I mean, self regulation in a way. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, it does not work. Okay. Yeah. We've seen that before. <laughs> um, and then the other thing about in this kind of category that you wrote about was um, um, PFAS or PFAS, PFAS, right? In food, the toxic mm-hmm. chemical. Um, this, can you tell us a little bit about what these about what these are? Like this to me is an issue I've talked about a little bit in the past as it relates to 
landfills um, because I think that that is an area that is getting like the, it's like these chemicals are leaching out of the landfills and getting into the water supply. Um, This to me seems like a big ticking time bomb. Um, Did the administration do anything to address this or kind of potentially make this situation more dangerous? Um, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, say anything that is factually, um, incorrect. I, to, to be honest, I don't know a ton about this. We included a mention of it. Um, I know a lot about, um, PFAS, you know, like you said, these chemicals that are from the manufacture of, um, Teflon and other, other materials that are basically in our water supply and in soil all over the country at this point. Yeah. Basically everywhere. Um, and so there was so the the thing I know that that happened, which we just mentioned briefly in this story, was that um, the FDA did testing um, on food. They took samples of from the food supply and tested food that Americans eat for um, these chemicals and found levels that um, pretty high levels in a lot of the food. But the they the FDA then determined that they didn't find the levels to be. Um, Concerning. They essentially said, even though all this food did, we did find it, it it's not dangerous. Um, and I mean, I will say, so I don't know, like I said, I'm not going to, I don't really know exactly how clear the research is on, you know, what it means to ingest these in food. But I know the, um, the environmental working group was not happy with that decision and um, definitely thought the administration should be, take a more cautious approach. Yeah. Um, um, Okay, so moving on to food and farm labor. Um, This to me seemed to be like one of the most sort of mean-spirited and cruel set of policies (laughs) aimed at, you know, people working in our food system, which of course are historically marginalized. Um, So... I, like if I had to summarize it, it it um, had to be yeah. I, I don't know. Actually, can you just tell me a little bit about kind of about sort of what happened right here? Because my read of the summary was that like the administration wants to arrest or deport eight million undocumented food workers, even though they're not enough U.S. workers who are able and willing to do this kind of work, and at the same time reduce their wages. <laughs> Is that about That's right? That's actually a really good summary. That was like very direct and clear. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, you're you're so right, right? There's eight million undocumented food workers in this country. I mean, the food system literally runs on undocumented um, labor, the labor of undocumented people, and you know that's true whether you're talking about farm workers, meatpacking workers, restaurant workers. Um, our food system de- depends on on these people, and you know Trump. I mean, he ran on a big part of his first campaign was cracking down on immigration. You know, building a wall. Um, used lots of racially coded language during that campaign directed at immigrants and. Um, just yeah, the administration got into the into office and it sort of immediately started cracking down on um, undocumented immigrants, which means a lot of them are in the food system. So you know, it was raids, ice raids at um, farms in Vermont and food, you know, food uh, meatpacking plants in the Midwest, just kind of all over the place. And um, 
like you said, while they're cracking down on on workers, they're also, um, well, actually <laughs> cracking down on those workers and then, you know, sort of failing to protect the workers who were then during COVID um, sent to work in plants where there were, and on farms where there were major outbreaks. And basically the administration said, well, OSHA is just going to kind of stand by and issue guidance and say, yeah, you should, you should provide PPE. You should do these things, but we're not going to enforce it. So um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, there's just been really terrible uh, COVID-19 outbreaks at many meatpacking plants and other uh, farms and food businesses. And by the way, those are still, I mean, it's, I get a little bit better now because now the, the plants have installed some protections because it was so covered in the news and everything, but it's still, there's still a lot happening. I mean, we're also right now in this crazy <laughs> worsening pandemic situation, right? Um, but but yeah, so not protecting workers there. And then, right, then also kind of revamping the H-2A guest worker program to, in a way that essentially, it's kind of, it's com- there's a whole rule, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, like you said, it, it is going to lead to lower wages for those guest workers. Um, so it's it's not a great situation for, for workers, basically. Yeah. I mean, does that affect the actual, like, farmers themselves, too? Farmers who overwhelmingly supported Trump? Like, if they can't find, maybe they want to pay their workers less, but if they can't actually find labor, you know, there are all these stories, especially during COVID, of, like, they, they actually they didn't have people to, like, harvest. So there was so much yeah. food waste happening, like, on the farm. So I can't imagine that these policies or that all of these policies would be popular with like a big part of Trump's base. Yeah, there is, I, that is kind of complicated. Like I, I, I know, like I've talked to many farmers and I've seen interviews with farmers where, you know, they might be Trump supporters, but they depend on undocumented labor. And I mean, I, I guess I think that's why um, the administration has been very supportive of keeping and even potentially expanding the guest worker program. Um, you know, they say, okay, we're not going to let undocumented people in, but we're going to send these guest workers um, and we'll, we'll make that program better for the farmer in the, you know, we'll, We'll, we'll we'll allow you to pay them less and and maybe add some flexibility for farmers in and so that's sort of their way of kind of I guess staying on the the good side of of the farmers because but but still I mean that guest worker program it it provides workers for very limited parts of the industry and I don't know I I don't know what the food system, what would happen if, you know, that kind of crackdown was able to just continue? I, there's not enough people to do the work. There, there just aren't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and then you mentioned earlier the raising the poultry line, the line speed limits. Is this happening like permanently or where is this like policy and development? Yeah, sure. So, that was a policy that um, they originally they had been kind of granting waivers to companies to raise. Uh, the USDA had been granting waivers to companies to allow individual companies to operate at higher speeds. And then it during the pandemic in the spring, 
they signaled their intention to essentially, they put it on the agenda to introduce a permanent rule that would allow all poultry um, facilities to raise their line speeds. And that was just kind of sitting there until last week, maybe. Um, and w- And apparently now they are trying to move it forward. And the rule has gone to the Office of Management and Budget, which is the um, agency that just quickly basically uh, assesses the cost of the the rule change. And it means that it's probably going to be published for comment like maybe next week, very soon. And they'll try to get it through, essentially finalize it before um, the end of the Trump administration. So that's what it looks like is going to happen at this point. That's really great that that's their main focus right now. They're like, we have almost, you know, what will soon be 200,000 cases of COVID, new cases every day, and record unemployment, or like 11 million people unemployed, but like, really got to, we really got to make it harder for meatpacking workers, for poultry yeah. line workers. It's so um, not what we need right now. <laughs> it's just bad all around. It's a bad decision. Great. Okay. It's kind of, yeah, it's crazy that I I don't actually know why they would focus on that at this moment in time. It's kind of crazy. All right. Well, let's, um, let's talk about food access and school meals because there's more good news here. Um, well, you know, well, maybe we'll, we'll see. One of my questions would be is kind of like the lasting effects of some of these policy changes, but of course, um, we, when thinking about, um, School meals. Um, it's pretty widely understood that the 2010 Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was um, really, which worked to, of course, like establish science-based nutrition standards, um, was super successful and in like you know reducing obesity rates among low-income children. I think that you actually wrote up about this, right? Um, yes. New information that came about this in, in July, um, mm-hmm. and yet. <laughs> Seems like the USDA has been proposing rollbacks of these standards, like across the board. So, can you tell me a little bit about that Harvard study, and then what are some of the proposed changes um, that we've seen so far, and where are they now? Sure. So that study um, you mentioned, yeah, came out earlier this year, and it, it found that the the changes that were made. Um, to school meal programs that they really had a significant impact on reducing obesity rates, um, specifically among low-income children, not so much across the... They didn't find a... They didn't find that it it did anything negative for the overall population, but that specifically it really significantly reduced um, obesity among low-income children, which... Um, you know, the researchers said makes sense because a lot of low-income children rely on those meals or eating those meals maybe as two of their meals every single day if you're getting, say, um, free or reduced price school breakfast and free or reduced price lunch. It's a big portion of your diet, you know, at that point. So, um, so yeah, good. And, and actually, the USDA has, has uh, done its own evaluations of the nutrition standard uh, changes and has found pretty much... Um, mostly completely positive results. Um, but yeah, the, the USDA under Trump has, you know, sort of came in um, with the intent to unravel some of those standards with the idea that they're too restrictive for um, 
schools to follow, that they they kind of place a burden on um, on the food service directors. And they've done, there have been about three, I think, um, separate attempts to um, roll back a few of the different uh, requirements. One of the big ones was they cut the whole grain uh, requirement from 100 to 50%. Um, they allowed um, flavored milks back in. It, they, the changes had mandated no, you know, strawberry or chocolate milk just because there's too much sugar. Um, those were allowed back in. So there's, they've just sort of been like throughout the administration, um, introducing new rules. One of the, the biggest one, the first one, um, the USDA was sued over it because, um, advocacy group, advocacy group said this violates the law because, you know, the healthy hunger free kids act was a law that was passed. And, um, and a judge did rule in favor of of those groups, and so that particular rollback is technically now um, invalid, and so so that one is not, you know, it's back to the the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act standard. Um, but some of the other ones are still in progress. So it's just like a lot of sort of small tweaks that potentially could make the meals um, less nutritious less across yeah, the board. Like- yeah. Um, I, again, it's like, why, you know, I mean, these changes have been in, in implemented and they were of course like staged, but like there was a staged process, but this work had been underway for five to seven years prior. And so I know that like, you know, it's a constant kind of battle between what is feasible for school food service directors. And it just, it takes a while to change procurement practices, but it was happening, (laughs) (laughs) you know, quite successfully. And um, this was just one of those, you know, when when I first started reading about it and they started this work like pretty quickly, right? The Yeah, it was 2017. Yeah. The first one. uh, Wasted no time. Really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It was just one of those. I also, you know, I've done school work on school food many, many moons ago. And so it was particularly like triggering for me. <laughs> like, what are you <laughs> doing? Um, okay. I dare I ask this question. Whatever became of the White House kitchen garden? Do you know? Because I haven't read very much about it. Did that suffer the same fate as a rose garden or is that still operational? No, I, I, I vaguely remember, that's funny, I did not look at it for this story. So, you know, this is not a factual answer, but I have this vague memory in my brain of like right when the Trump administration moved into the White House of hearing that they like plowed it over, <laughs> like something like that. Um, I, I, I don't know if don't that's know. true. So. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like um, f- for further investigation. Because I don't know either. I was, it was just, it just kind of occurred to me today. I'm like, whatever. I was reading about, you know, like reading up on the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act and Michelle. And I was like, whatever happened to that? Um, Okay. So, so in thinking about anti-hunger programs, like more broadly, we can of course divide it into like pre-COVID and and now. And it's no Mm -hmm. secret that Republicans have been aggressively trying to make significant cuts to SNAP, which is of course the country's largest and most impactful food assistance program. But how successful has this administration been in this endeavor to, to really, um, shrink the size of this program 
prior to the pandemic? And are there any decisions, you know, still pending? They, they've been trying since the beginning of the administration to, um, to essentially tighten eligibility rules around SNAP um, and reduce the number of people that are receiving SNAP benefits. Um, and, you know, there was one a study that estimated they had these three big changes they proposed that would have resulted in 3.7 million people being removed from the program. But so far, not none of those um, attempts have really, like, set in the the one that was going to it, it <laughs> I feel like I forgot it's hard to keep track of because it has gone back and forth so, so many, many times. times yeah yeah this one proposal that was essentially going to tighten the rules for um able-bodied uh unemployed people um kicking them off and it was going to kick off 700,000 people and it they got it through but then they got sued and a judge blocked it and I right now I think <laughs> I, I honestly, I don't want to say either way, but it's basically just been back and forth. And so I don't know exactly if like any of the attempts to reduce um, benefits have really been successful at this point. Um, it it's, it's just been sort of a fight. They've just been a lot of, <laughs> they've just been fighting tooth and nail throughout the administration. And one thing they, that ha- that hasn't happened that a lot of people have, have, been fighting for is since the pandemic, they, there have been so many calls to just raise um, SNAP benefits across the board. And um, by fi- like the new uh, relief bill that was supposed to move forward that never did was people were really trying to get in um, a 15% raise in SNAP benefits into that. And the administration and um, Republicans overall have just really fought against that, um, even during the pandemic when we all know that food insecurity has risen an incredible amount. Yeah, and like 15% yeah. would probably be a maximum of, what, like $20, $20 additional dollars maybe for most people a month? Is it a month or is it a week? Um, I'm not sure exactly how the how the numbers would work out, but yeah. um, not a lot. It's not that's not that yeah. big of an ask. I I feel right. confident in in saying. Um, okay, so what? But the and the administration did did step in and offer emergency food assistance, right? Because, like you said, we know food insecurity has been at record highs. What has that looked like since the start of the pandemic? And um, how secure are these assistance, these emergency assistance feeding programs for, you know, throughout the, the, the winter, let's say, when things are looking to get pretty bad again? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the efforts are kind of short-term. The, the Farmers to Families Food Boxes, which is a big one and has had all kinds of um, issues along the way, uh, they have distributed more than 100 million boxes. I think they've now extended it through December. I'm not sure if they've extended it through next year yet. Um, but, the, you know, that's just sort of um, emergency food distribution. And um, PEBT, which is pandemic um, EBT for for low income children that that was helpful in some states, but pretty small. I think the biggest thing that that actually helped during this time was the USDA did make it easier for um, schools to f- continue to feed 
students um, for their meals, even when they weren't at school, and even in a lot of cases to feed more people beyond just the students. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of advocacy groups have said it kind of showed the fact that there's there's just a lot of inequality built into the school meal program, and, and um, a lot of groups are pushing for universal school meals across the board. And that is one thing the USDA has um, come out solidly against as a policy, but they did extend it through uh, the end of this school year, so 2021, um, given the fact that we don't know what school program, you know, we don't know what the school schedule is going to look like essentially even into the spring. So, How were meals being distributed if classes were not in, in session, were not happening in person? Mostly um, grab and go. So, you know, sort of packing up uh, lunches and boxes for families to pick up. Some some school districts around the country did delivery. Some used uh, school bus drivers who were not working to deliver the food. Yeah. yeah. So it just really depended district to district um, around the country. But it was pretty crazy how people just like, you know, the word now everyone uses pivoted, but these school food service directors basically created entirely new ways to to feed their the students and families. Yeah, that's that's that is um a heartwarming <laughs> yeah. story or development. Um okay, so we are going to take a really quick commercial break, but um don't go anywhere because we'll be back in just a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away, it also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. The Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture will be hosting their annual Young Farmers and Cooks Conference virtually this year on December 8th through 10th. Programming will cover topics like mutual aid, regional grain economies, land management practices, and much, much more. Whether you're a farmer, cook, butcher, miller, preservationist, processor, or anyone else in the food chain, this conference is for you. Learn more at stonebarncenter.org YFCC. Okay, and we're back on Eating Matters, where today I am speaking with Lisa Held, senior policy reporter for Civil Eats, about her recent article, How Four Years of Trump Reshaped Food and Farming. Um, all right, so I have um, kind of some summary questions, if you will, Lisa. Um, sure. The first is, 
have there been any positive developments, any, like <laughs> anything whatsoever um, that has happened over the past four years with our, you know, food system policy that is moving in the right direction? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because, you know, my job as a journalist isn't to make judgments about what's positive and negative, but it's really just to lay out what happened. And I I will, like, to clarify this story, you know, we went into with, like, we're just going to lay out everything this administration did. And it was in no means, like, an attempt to um, show all these negative things. But I think for people... In you know there are places where I'll say this was this is negative, which is like in in places where it's not political, where like climate change. That's if you're you know if if there are policies that are um, ignoring science on climate, um, that's just theoretically bad for everyone on the planet. Um, not theoretically, definitely bad. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I I mean I think there are people who would say a lot of this is positive, depending on their point of view and who they are and where they, they are. They probably we, don't we listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe yeah, I should have said, you know, our listeners are my show. <laughs> Is there anything yeah. positive? No, I, I, mean, I totally, you are, you're like, I'm a professional journalist. Thank you. And I report the facts, which is, um, which is great. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> anything maybe that like, you know, people who are not fans. So to rephrase, anything people who are not fans of the administration's, most administration's policies, let's say, anything that they have, you know, there has maybe been alignment on like bipartisan support of or um, anything that like Trump naysayers have reversed course on and been like, good job on that one thing. Mm, um. One thing I I will say, the USDA um, did, I mean, they were kind of required to do it, but um, they moved forward um, a big rule on organic agriculture that um, is designed to prevent fraud in the organic industry, which is really huge and affects a lot of um, organic farmers, especially the smallest um, organic farmers. So that's a big deal, and that will probably have long-lasting impacts on hopefully really creating an industry that is a little more fair, um, Mm -hmm. in organic. Um, what about the, the, you wrote about the consolidation that Trump has spoken out about consolidation in the meat industry. Um, and it's, and it seems like the DOJ has kind of gone after price fixing in the poultry industry, which to me seems like a good thing. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. So he spoke out uh, against it. I Nothing ever really came of that. Um, and I think the vast majority of the Trump administration's policies have aligned with the biggest corporate consolidated companies. So um, I want to make that clear. Um, But yes, the DOJ has continued to do their work throughout this administration, whether or not he the administration is on board with it or not i'm not even sure but they have they've been prosecuting price fixing in poultry and um that's that's a really huge deal i think there there's like a dozen something like a dozen executives um who are who are now being uh prosecuted so yeah that that is yeah definitely well that was one thing, thing. It, it was like they're you know kind of the, the issue is like also, you know, for obviously farmers' wages were being dropped. But then also 
they the administration rolled back protections for when they dissolved um, Gypsa, which right, which I was like, I don't understand because I'm because I'm pretty sure that that office. Well, you you tell us what was Gypsa doing and how is that contradictory? Well, yeah, they that was an office that is supposed to essentially regulate anti-competitive behavior and you know practices that essentially make it easy for corporations to take advantage of farmers. And, you know, this office is supposed to protect farmers from those um, predatory actions. And they dissolve, they move the office to a place where it would have less um, power, essentially. And then they overturned new rules that were, were supposed to really give that agency more power. They just got rid of them. So... That yeah, that's one example of how okay he can say maybe the president gave some lip service to um, consolidation and we need to protect our farmers, but when it came to policy, that's not really what they've done. <laughs> actually happened. They're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, um, really. Um, so many of the issues that we've discussed were really thrown into the spotlight because of COVID, which of course like was laid bare a lot of these major challenges to our food system. Do you think that, and I don't love the word silver lining, but kind of, do you think that this could have been a sort of like positive development or silver lining, this drawing attention to issues that previously haven't dominated the news cycles? And do you think anything positive policy-wise could come from it? Well, I think uh, you're definitely right in that more people than ever because of the pandemic are paying attention to the food system in new ways. I I mean, the, the crazy example is, you know, I've been covering these issues at Civil Eats for a very long time. Civil Eats has been covering issues like uh, consolidation in meatpacking and, um, you know, the the challenges that farm workers and other food workers face and, you know, inequality and justice, all these things in food, and nobody has cared about them for a very yeah. long time. Yeah. And that, you know, and then the pandemic came and we saw supply chains fall apart and workers are getting sick and me- and then suddenly all of like the mainstream media outlets have been covering this stuff. And so there's definitely just more attention and that is, de- there's, that's, absolutely hands down a good thing that more people are seeing and understanding um, where their food comes from. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it'll, if it'll really have an effect. I I hope it, it leads to people thinking more um, critically about policies that will establish a system that's more resilient in the future and more equal, equitable, uh, I, d- I don't know if that'll happen. It's, it's, there've been issues before, you know, there've been moments before where things have happened like this and, but maybe not as much as this, like this pandemic is pretty unprecedented. So yeah, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> time, time will tell. Um, mm-hmm. okay. So last question for you, what is, what is something, um, you're going to be keeping your eye on closely in the coming, um, weeks or months from a policy perspective? Wow. Um, I have like I'm, so I'm many things. I don't... Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Help me scoop you. <laughs> or whatever. I mean, I think, I think, Everyone in this space is looking at uh, what 
a Biden administration is going to do right away, when it, especially on climate change. And I think in in my world, I'd be you know looking specifically at like what that looks like for climate and agriculture policy. And there's a lot of debate in. I mean, there it, the fact that climate is at the top of his agenda is you know established and exciting. But mm-hmm. the ways that that will play out um, in the agriculture and food space are less clear. So that's going to be a really big thing that um, we'll be following. You know, is it going to be carbon markets? Is it going to be, is he going to sort of bring the smaller uh, farm organizations that represent kind of the more alternative uh <laughs> farms and and less of the corporate players into the conversation, things like that, just as the change in power transition happens. Um, I'll definitely be paying attention to that. Great. All right. Well, um, last question, where can um, readers go to learn uh, to follow your work? Sure. Um, best place is civileats.com. Um, I have a story usually about one a week there. That's my main um publication and you could also follow me on instagram my handle is lisa elaine h awesome or twitter and, i guess it's the same and twitter and twitter <laughs> there you go um i also wanted to put in a plug to support food journalism i saw that civil eats is now for a limited time offering a pay what you can membership option for access to the your content um is that did i get that right lisa Yes. Um, I don't, I don't have like the numbers off the top of my head, but definitely, um, go to civileats.com and there are many ways to subscribe. Um, and you also just get a certain number of free articles a month, even if you're not subscribed, but yeah, I would encourage uh, people to subscribe and to look into that pay what you can model. Yeah. Always, always, Always important to support food journalism. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my on the show. This was great. Thank you for having me, Jenna. Um, I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsor. Our show engineer is Matt Patterson, and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.